I have a poster of it in the room with me, the the Deadly Prey version of it, where there's just like a oh, bunch yeah. of severed heads and legs on the landscape. Oh, awesome. War notes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I I gave Scott for his birthday. I don't know if I told you guys this, but I gave Scott for his birthday uh, a small one, you know, like a little lithograph kind of uh, Deadly Prey print of Stalker. Oh, yeah. And it's a hilarious one because it's got like skeletons. It's got skeletons on it with like swords and shields and shit. It's just, you know, wacky, you know, you can imagine. And I was like, oh, yeah, Scott, Scott will get a kick out of this. And, And I had to hold on to it for a while. Yeah, because Scott and I just we we didn't see each other, blah blah. And I'm not kidding you. I I gotta be honest. There were like five times I would look at that thing sitting in my room, and I was just like, "It's mine now." And I was like, "I'm not. I'm just gonna fucking keep this thing. <laughs> this thing rocks. Every time I look at it, I love it more." And I'm like, "I don't want to give this shit away now, you know." But I I I you know I held off. I I gave it. To him, so. <laughs> Next year we can go in on a full size uh, society. Poster for oh, Scott. He loves the shunt. Can you imagine yeah. what those guys would do with a shunt? You know, they'd be, they'd be, they'd be like, we already kind of do this yeah. in every other. That's true. Poster. It'd probably just be normal. You know, like yeah. no one would be shunting. It would just be like people in suits. <laughs> yeah. Society. Yeah, dude. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, oh, oh. The truth this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? They crown their ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of... The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic for the week, a theme. Uh, The other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic address the topic, challenge the topic, all that good stuff. Uh, it was my turn to pick the topic this week. I was up. And as I mentioned at the end of our episode, uh, our, our last episode, you know, I guess I've just been paying attention to too much of what people have been talking about and various uh, forms of social media lately. But it just seems like everyone these days is just, you know, all bugaboo about who's going to jail, how long they should go to jail, why they should go to jail. Everybody, everybody's solution, it seems, to all of our various, you know, political and and social problems seems to be to just want somebody to be fucking locked up. Um, And and yeah, you know, as I mentioned recently, uh, that was reaching a, 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 a sort of fever pitch with these sentences that were being handed down to a lot of those, uh, you know, proud boy fucking maggots and, and their, their, uh, you know, their, their, their final justice for the January 6th riot. Um, so it just kind of had me thinking about prison. It had me thinking about the slammer and the lockup. I think I also mentioned that, uh, probably my most, well, my second most recurring nightmare features me 
going to prison. In my nightmares, I am like going to prison. Sometimes I am, I'm like in prison and, and they are some of my most like just unsettling, terrifying nightmares. I, I can't tell you how many times I have, I have woken up from one of these prison nightmares and I've, I've laid there in bed for like 15 or 20 minutes, just try to, trying to sort of like talk myself down in my head of being like, you're not going to prison. Like it was just a bad dream. You're okay. Everything's fine. <laughs> you know, what are you normally going to prison for in those nightmares? I mean, I never really know. That's the thing. I never oh, really, man. I never really know, but I know that I'm going. Uh, I know that I'm on my way to the big house, to that gray bar grill. Um, and yeah, they are, they're very upsetting. I, I think if I were to like psychoanalyze it a little bit, I think it's because when I was like three or four, I had an incident where <laughs> I, um, I, I shoplifted. But I, it was like a three or four year old kid. I didn't know what the hell I was fucking doing. You know, I just like pocketed something at a store that I saw that I was like, cool. And I didn't understand money or buying things. And my parents uh, dragged me back over to the store and and had the, the owner of the store like confront me in that kind of you mentioned Hitchcock last week. It was a it was like my Hitchcock moment where like. The guy was like, I could call the cops. I could call the police. Like he really like laid into me. It was a terrifying experience for a young boy to, to go through. And no offense to my parents, you know, like whatever. They probably didn't know it was going to be, it was going to go down that way, you know, but this guy was very, very harsh to young me. So, so maybe that has always been somewhere in the back of my mind, this, this fear of, of, that kind of punishment, those repercussions. I'll never forget this guy saying like, I could call the police right now and you could go to jail, young man, you know? Obviously that's probably not what would happen, but still it's always been in there and I am, I am haunted to this day by it, my, my own time as a criminal, but, but I certainly got away with one. Uh, the movies we've got this week, no one seems to be getting away with uh, much at all. All. So without further ado, we should bring out our prisoners, our wardens, our, our prison guards, our convicts, uh, our, our conjugal visitees, visitors, I guess you could say. Visitors is, is the correct word, not visitees. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, without further ado, and there's already been too much, let's get into it. Uh, Ryan... You had the earlier film, so why don't you, why don't you tell everybody uh, uh, what you got for us today? I actually have a little more further ado. Andy, what is your number one recurring nightmare? You qualified it by saying it was your second most frequent nightmare, if you're willing to share. It's got to be the zombie apocalypse. It's the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Marsh knows. Yeah. Zombie apocalypse. Really? You have nightmares about oh, yeah. a zombie yeah. apocalypse? And like where it feels real? Zombies. Yeah. Yeah. My, my nightmares generally will either be zombies or prison. Zombies or prison. Wow. And not like a video game situation, like a real life zombie invasion. Oh yeah. Like I've seen my family get torn apart. I've seen my neighbor's house get like, you know, so it's overwhelmed. I mean, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it all, man. I've seen it all. Yeah. Wow. And they are, 
they are very grisly. grisly. They are they are equally as upsetting and troubling to me. Although occasionally I'll have a cool one. I, I do remember one zombie apocalypse stream where like I kind of I kind of got on my feet a little bit, and I do remember like one vision of it where I had somehow like commandeered an Escalade, and I was just cruising down like some highway in an Escalade while like a nuclear bomb was like hitting like, you know, the city of Chicago on my right or something. And I was just in a white Escalade cruising. That was probably the coolest one where I felt like, all right, you know, time for a new beginning. But generally speaking, no, they're they're pretty awful. They're pretty horrible. And again, wow. this this episode isn't about psychoanalyzing me. I mean, I could I could go on and on, but we'll save it for a week when we yeah. when we are are focused on zombies again. We already have done that. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess we could psychoanalyze me a tiny bit in my preamble about prison because I had a very similar incident when I was a kid. And I think I've always had the fear of of going to jail. And I think it's because I'm just a rule follower at heart as much as I like to say, like, ah, fuck the rules. There's still something in me. We've talked about it on the gambling episode, if you go back 65 episodes, <laughs> that I'm not a gambler at heart. You know, I'm very risk averse. But I had an extremely similar incident, Andy, when I was growing up that in hindsight was really formative where I was at Sears with my father and I pocketed a green grape, a fake green grape from one of the displays on the furniture that had a bowl of fruit, of fake like plastic rubber fruit. Oh, yeah. And I pocketed one of those and he caught that. But what was funny was when he did then make me go and confront one of the workers at Sears, it was probably, you know, some kid and he's maybe like 19 who was just like, okay, dude, you know, because he was like, you know, son, you have to apologize for stealing this grape. And he made a huge show of it to try and give me that exact same lesson about theft. You know, he recognized, okay, I got to get the store involved so he can feel the severity of this. And I guess it had the intended effect, but in hindsight, it's funny. It kind of feels like a misfire because the employee just like did not give a shit about the grape. It was a victimless crime (laughs) as far as they go. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't even eat it. But yeah, I. Oh, wow. Hold. Oh. Never mind. No, no, no. <laughs> no, wow, wow. Marsh, what about you? Yeah, well, I, was gonna, you? I was just going <laughs> to. Yeah. The- <laughs> I was just going to interject and say, unlike Ryan, I, I do not have respect for the rules, and I, and I never did. And if you want to hear about me being arrested, listen to the Wiseman podcast episode about juvenile court. Uh, which I went to when I was, uh, you know, like 14 or 15. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, that's just, that's my experience. We've got a, we've got an actual, I didn't get locked up, but, uh, I, I did have to do a lot of community service. I gotta, I gotta say that it's not that I respect the rules is that (laughs) there's something deep seated inside of me that makes me conform to them at times, but I will always advocate for those to not respect the rules. Maybe I'm a coward, (laughs) but I will, I will go into the film now that I selected and, when you first pitched the topic, Andy, immediately my thought was, I got to do a woman in prison film. And that was what I was exploring. And I was so overwhelmed at the amount of options. And I honestly don't know why I didn't even pick one, but I guess I almost thought, man, maybe I'll just do woman in prison as its own topic at a later date, you know, maybe 65 episodes from now, because it is a really rich topic and it almost feels like its own unique 
genre in and of itself and it's so loaded and complicated sure and i yeah i mean this is just one of those classic weeks spoiled for choice it's cinematic representations of prison both outdoor prisons interior prisons it's it's endless it's a huge preoccupation especially in american cinema and the film i ended up going with was one i've been recommended to by marsh i've had it on my radar for a long time and i think Part of it was just the irresistible urge of going with the film from our beloved year of 1974. God bless. God bless. So I decided to go with a documentary about the Attica prison uprising. And the film itself is called Attica, directed by Cinda Firestone. I was able to learn just a little bit about Cinda Firestone. She doesn't have a very storied career Um, in film. I read that she did actually produce a few other documentaries, but I haven't been able to track them down. But this is what she's primarily known for. She is of the Firestone fortune. She is like of that family. And in making this documentary, she was cut off as an heir to the Firestone family fortune. Uh, She herself was a bit of a radical. She was jailed during um, the Columbia University anti-Vietnam War uprisings. And at the time, in this era of when this film came out, she was working at uh, the Liberation News Service, which was like a radical community newspaper and news organization. So she was very active and on the ground. And so this film is both a mixture of on-site reportage, Um, playback of tapes from hearings and direct testimonial from prisoners who were all involved in the 1971 Attica prison uprising. And the uprising, for those who don't know about it, was when over a thousand inmates took control of the the prison yard at uh, the Attica Correctional Facility in New York in protest for the conditions that they were suffering from. It was... uh, it was a landmark in prison's rights because the, the key things that they were fighting for were the fact that the prison was totally overcrowded and overpopulated. I think it was designed to accommodate maybe 1,200 prisoners, and at that point, the amount of prisoners in there had went well over 2,000. They felt as though they were all being treated like beasts. There was racism everywhere. Their mail was being read. They, the quality of life is extremely low. When they took control of the yard, they... they took some hostages with them, uh, and they kind of developed almost what seems like if you were to, you know, take control of a prison yard, a sort of utopia. It was rather well-functioning, and they had very clear demands about having more access to health care, more access to education, and just better care overall of, of the prisoners. And things took a grisly turn. In the midst of negotiations, Governor Rockefeller sent in the, the National Guard, and... Or sent in the state troop. Oh, he sent in. Uh, he sent in all of them. He sent them all. He sent in everybody. They all came. Yeah. So, so apparently there were also like park police who somehow yeah. were able to like show up and join in on the, the fun for them. Yeah. Jesus. And it was it was nightmarish. Um, over thirty inmates were killed. Nine hostages were killed. As the film points out, seven of those hostages were killed by police bullets. There were police bullets found in their bodies. And then this film documents then how there was this attempt at a revision in the public to make it seem as though 
it was not the police that had caused all these killings, but instead that it was this brutal uprising where the prisoners were slitting the throats of the hostages. It's a really remarkable film. There's been a few films about the Attica uprising, and I haven't seen any of them, but I know that one came out rather recently that people seem to, to enjoy. And it's, it's just a really well-documented event, and it's sort of a landmark in American history. I mean, I believe it was the probably the bloodiest conflict uh, in American history, like since the Civil War at that point, uh, along with like some of the, the the Indian Wars. And the film itself, like I said, mixture of reportage, you got some on the ground stuff, color photography, you have some interesting still image interviews with the prisoners, and you also have some wild video reportage of the, the hearings and the actual tragedy itself. And it's a really engaging watch. And it's just one of those things that it's a great artifact to have from the era itself, just something that was like produced at the same time. And it's also remarkable that the filmmaker herself, I believe was like 23 or 25 years old while she was producing it. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dig in a little more into it, but that's Attica from 1974. Thank you, Ryan. Um, Marsh, what about you? Why don't you tell us about the film that you brought? Yes, well, Ryan said it. Spoiled for choice, indeed. Uh, so many great prison films, so many great filmmakers have tackled the subject. Some of my favorites, you know, Jules Dassin, Jacques Becker, Don Siegel, Renoir, Brisson, Jarmusch, you know, go down the line, Jonathan Demme. And eventually, speaking of, I landed on another Demi. I knew Ryan, of course, was going to pick, I think, uh, a documentary. You know, we were, you know, we were in communication, of course. And, and I thought, well, I could really take this like one of two ways at that point. If, he, if he's picking something a little more sobering, I was like, well, I got to pick like an exploitation or, or a comedy if I can uh, find one. And of course, I remembered the classic Ted Demi film from 1999, Life. Of course, it's really an Eddie Murphy film. It was his idea. He pitched it to Brian Grazer. They hired some screenwriters. They hired Martin Lawrence. Uh, and of course, the, the rest is history. It is a star vehicle for those two leads. And in the film, I guess I'll just give a, a broad overview. Uh, the, it's, it starts, well, it starts in 1997 as two people are being buried in the cemetery of the Mississippi State Penitentiary. And one of the inmates starts to, you know, tell the story of these two men. And we go all the way back to uh, the Depression, to New York City, to Harlem. And we meet, of course, Ray, played by Eddie Murphy, who is a scoundrel and a pickpocket down on his luck, uh, and Claude, played by Martin Lawrence, who is a middle-class striver who is starting his new job as a bank teller, uh, you know, this upcoming Monday or whatever, you know. Uh, they get into some trouble at Spanky's, you know, they run afoul of Rick James, uh, and soon they are on a hooch run to the south to atone for their uh, financial, you know, indiscretions with these gangsters. And while in the south, of course, uh, things do not go well. Uh, they are framed for murder by a local sheriff and sentenced to life in prison. 
Um, it's a very episodic film. It goes from 1932 to 1944 to 1975, I think. Two? Oh. 1972. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, to uh, the 1990s as well. And so it gives us these big chunks of their time as they uh, live uh, their lives in the slammer. It is a, a, a strange film, you know, it's a film that I, I saw at the time and I, I subsequently enjoyed uh, on cable, but it, God, it's been ages since, since I, uh, I had seen it. I want to share some people's thoughts on this film, because they're very funny, and it'll give us some context. When the film came out, it received mixed reviews, and it also had a, a mixed box office reception as well. It didn't make its money back, although I'm sure in the long tail it did, of course, with home video and cable. But uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times uh, wrote a positive review and said, it's hard to miss the basic unfunniness of this situation. Nobody who saw last year's prize-winning prison documentary, The Farm, Angola, USA, is liable to be in stitches. But this mild-mannered comedy proves more likable than it sounds. Roger Ebert in the Sun-Times gave it three, three stars. He said it skirts the edge of despair. It's a film that almost seems nostalgic about what must have been a brutal existence. When was the last time a movie made prison seem almost pleasant? <laughs> Rosenbaum, in The Reader, said, It's funny, as well as poignant. <laughs> so that gives you an idea that it is certainly a strange film, because it does take on, of course, these sort of big American themes. I mean, it's a film about black men going to prison, and all that that is implied the white power structures, the horrible things that happen to some of these people. And yes, as Ebert said, it's a, a lighthearted comedy for the most part, so it's, you know, a strange object, but it still takes a lot of that stuff very seriously. And I think for Murphy and Lawrence, it's more of a character-driven piece uh, than a, like, you know, a star vehicle where they're just sort of doing their own shtick and quipping, and it's like much more grounded in these characters and their relationship over time. And it's got a wonderful cast. Uh, one of the great appeals of the film is uh, all those people they serve time with, including Bernie Mac, Barry Shabaka Henley, Anthony Anderson, Bokeem Woodbine, and many, many more. So uh, I had a blast revisiting it, and uh, I hope I hope you guys did too, you know? Uh, that's life. That's life. <laughs> Keep Sinatra dude. <laughs> Thank you, Marsh. Um yeah, I should I should point out um, that I am a big fan of this movie as well. And as a matter of fact, I almost picked this on a previous week. Uh, I almost picked this movie for our episode on roommates. I was like, this is, this <laughs> yeah. is a perfect movie. Yeah. It's a classic roommate for text. roommates. So I was, of course, very pleased uh, when you when you selected it because I felt like that was one that got away from me, one that had slipped away in terms of being able to discuss it on the podcast. So 
Here we are. Uh, thank you very much. I guess if I was just initially trying to sort of bring the two movies together, because I agree with a lot of the sentiments you expressed regarding life and its sort of curious... Uh, it, 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 as a curious kind of object, you know, what the movie is. And, and I'm, I'm very, uh, very much looking forward to us kind of getting into all that. But I guess to start with, I would say, you know, this, probably start with the obvious that, that I think both of these movies, uh, at their core are really, um, a plea of sorts, a plea of sorts. They're they're encouraging us to uh, somewhat, I think, challenge our perspective on prisoners, on convicts, on people who are in prison, you know, behind bars and that sort of thing. They are both uh, trying to to encourage us as audiences to see them not as numbering numbers, I guess, as Deleuze would call them in the state, but as human beings, as individuals, as, as people, as, as, as people who deserve dignity, dignity in spite of their surroundings, in spite of what may have brought them to this place. They are both cries in a certain respect for us to, to, to look at the the men in these situations as as more than uh, you know um, simply things to be to be locked up and thrown away and not thought of again. However, from there they depart in completely <laughs> different directions as to how they are going. To achieve that, or I guess, you know, um, to what ends, you know, both of these films sort of um, encourage us to kind of uh, leave with and walk away with. Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot because when I was reflecting on the culture I grew up in and the way that prison was talked about and how prisoners were always referred to on the news and even in school. You know, just the type of messaging I would be getting from educators about how we should think about prison and why people (laughs) belong in prison, you know. It's something that's so ingrained in American culture in certain respects about how, in in certain respects, they lose that dignity. They make you think about them in a sense of, like, these aren't people. And... It was interesting watching these movies out of order chronologically and near the end of of life when I believe it's Martin Lawrence is talking to Ned Beatty and, you know, he mentions that, oh, well, you know, of course, the situation here is that we're, we're both innocent. And Ned Beatty says, kind of funny that, you know, half the people here say the exact same thing. And Martin Lawrence says, well, excuse me if I don't laugh or I forgot to laugh, you know, and. I was thinking about what an impact something like Attica might have had on audiences that had that perception in 1974, thinking about Ned Beatty being confronted with a film like Attica, where if you come in with this predisposition that, oh, of course, anyone that's in prison deserves to be there and they deserve the punishments they're getting, to then be confronted with all of these people 
who obviously have a great deal of dignity and are fighting for just basic human rights in a system that they're stuck in. It's, you know, I imagine I'd hope that a film like of this power could have reached someone like that in 1974. But I was also just thinking then contextually, man, this film really feels like it was challenging a narrative of prison prisoners in America that's becoming a little more progressive these days. But I'm trying to think of like, man, 1974, like this film really did feel quite radical as a depiction of the Attica uprising for its time. Yeah, absolutely. And both of these films are about acts of resistance. I mean, even in life, that's sort of like one of the, you know, main, I guess, threads of the film is their repeated escape attempts. And it's linked in the film to hope and imagination, right? They never stop dreaming. That's like such a recurring thing, especially uh, with Eddie Murphy's character, who's like always scheming, you know? Um, and so in, in both those ways, yeah, like obviously in, in Attica, it's, you know, much more real and practical or whatever. I mean, I, I'm still shook by, you know, it's like one of the, I think it's one of the journalists or observers is talking to the press and he's like, they have a list of uh, what they call practical demands, which are 15 demands. Just about every one of them have to do with the improvement of prison conditions. This is not a riot of prisoners who are seeking to escape. It is a riot of prisoners who are eminently practical and who are spelling out conditions which they feel should be improved. And many of those conditions are requirements which are now in the existing law. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, Christ, you know, and and obviously what's what's even more depressing watching Attica today uh, is just the size of the prison population from even that moment to today. I mean, that's towards the beginning of the war on drugs. It's only gotten worse, um, which, again, makes this all seem. Uh, even more radical in retrospect. I mean, the first thing I wrote down was like, La Commune. Like, this is one of the great historical acts of rebellion ever. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and you know, as, uh, as we had, you know, maybe talked about a little bit briefly, but, you know, Ryan, you know, but you were not aware of this, but just before we started recording... I walked in on Marsh, uh, finally getting his eyes on John Frankenheimer's <laughs> docudrama, the HBO original movie Against the Wall, and and you know we were kind of just remarking on it as the movie was was coming to an end. Uh, that Frankenheimer ends this movie made in 1994. You know. 20 years after the release of, of your documentary uh, from 1974, Frankenheimer ends with a postscript saying like, hey, yeah, this happened in, in 71. Uh, just so you know, folks, uh, all this, this concern about reform that probably could have come out of this moment, what has resulted? Uh, the prison population of the United States over these 20 years has grown 300%, you know? Like... Jesus fucking Christ, just to, to put that into perspective. And that was 94, right? right? It was also during the Clinton administration where they started handing out 
insane oh, mandatory sentences. crime bill? Yes, <laughs> dude, for, for, for drug offenders. I mean, so what that percentage is probably over this period now into 2023, I mean... My God, one can only imagine. I shouldn't say one can only imagine. The numbers are probably out there. Yeah, I just don't have them in front of me. Grab, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine at this particular moment, yeah. but good <laughs> Lord. Holy shit. Yeah, you know, and, and there's also, I think, Ryan, in what you've said, like a, a sort of sadness in relation to, to, to that. Because, yes, a movie like Attica, a documentary like Attica, is is the kind of thing that to me, you know, presents like what is ideal, what is best in that form, uh, a certain type of documentary, right. That is meant to, to, uh, show us a great injustice, like a real one, you know, and, and to show us the people who were involved and to, yes, drag all of these fucking goons, these, these, you know, commissioners of, of corrections for the state of New York and fucking Governor Rockefeller to, to, to pull them out with actual footage. We can see them plain as day lying to us. Like it's the kind of thing that that should drive us, push us forward as people. But sadly, right, you know, this is where it's sort of bittersweet. In many cases, it it goes nowhere, you know, it's certainly even in the documentary already like fresh seems to be going nowhere in the McKay commission, you know, when you're getting these guys who are then dragged up and asked, Hey, well, okay. In the, in the aftermath of this bloody tragedy, what have you done to improve conditions? And I forget which guy it is. Maybe it's Dunbar. I think like the, the, the deputy commissioner or whatever, you know, he sort of thinks about it for a minute. It's like, all right, well, what have you done to, to make sure this never happens again? You know, in terms of, they mean improving conditions for, for the prisoners. And he goes, well, we put up two new gun towers, you know, it's like, that's it. That's the imagination that is born out of all of this, you know, this tragedy. And, and then yes, all these various people saying we should do something, we should fix things. It's like never on the table to improve their conditions. Whereas a new guard tower is no problem. I mean, you can easily link all of this stuff to, you know, what's depicted in a recent film, Riotsville, USA, which is the result of the Kerner Commission, which was like investigating the riots of the 60s. Why did this happen? And of course, the Kerner Commission was like, well, it's like the cops fault. Like they they're, they brutalize these people and then people revolt. Like also the National Guard is just shooting everyone. Uh, and the solutions that were actually implemented from the Kerner Commission uh, was fund the police. You know, that was the result of it. Just as the result of Attica was like, yeah, more security in prison, not uh, give these people uh, food, you know? Yeah. The guards need more guns. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's been the solution for, for a long time in so many areas of, of American life uh, that, yeah, it's it's disheartening to to say the least. I wrote down, you know, we have a long tradition on this podcast of appreciating 
commando raids. Something that happens in like one out of every three or four movies you watch, right? Think about it, folks. Uh, I wrote down, this is my least favorite commando raid. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Mentioning that the limits of their imagination were the guard tower reminded me of how I kind of interpreted the architecture of Attica State Prison and the weird effect it kind of had on my brain. I never knew what it actually looked like or just didn't remember the design of Attica State Prison. And I don't know, did you guys get the vibes that it almost looks like the Disney castle mm-hmm. from the Disney logo? Mm-hmm. And and I was thinking about, right, th- that a culture whose only imagination for trying to fix something like this is to add more guard towers. You know, it's, it's just pure happenstance the way it kind of like sinks up in my mind but it got me thinking about yeah in the disney culture you know there's only one way of viewing the world there's this monoculture and this only you know it's everything's clear as day good and evil people belong in prison who are there right like just keep building the giant disney castle it's just so scary to see that building repeatedly throughout it's very menacing and its design is is quite striking Well, speaking of imagination, I want to talk about uh, Ray's imagination in life, you know, because he sees a better world possible and he shares that vision uh, with his, you know, comrades in prison. And that is, of course, for Ray's boom boom room. Get this, I'm going to call my place. Check this out. Ray's boom boom room. Don't that sound like something? Don't that sound like a place where it's fun? Sound exciting. Ray's Boom Boom Room. Yeah, I like that. Hey, man, if you heard it was a place called the Boom Boom Room, when you want to check it out? Hell yeah, hell yeah, you'd want to. Shit yeah, you'd want to. Whew, the Boom Boom Room. <laughs> Which is a imaginary nightclub that uh, he tells everyone about and then everyone gets overly invested in, uh, in their minds, imagining being in this swinging Harlem nightclub. And I gotta say... That sequence, when it like breaks out into this sort of fantasy, kind of musical fantasy as they're all in their bunks, imagining their different roles in Ray's Boom Boom Room. Uh, Incredible sequence, really great cutting, very funny. It's beautiful, it's great Hollywood movie making. It's so tight, it's efficient, and it's so charming, and it just works. It's just so well storyboarded. It's the type of scene where, yeah, if you have the resources and the technicians, you can make something like that just feel smooth as butter. And I feel like that scene in particular was what made the movie really click for me in terms of even its title. And I think it also relates back to what you were saying, Marsh, about every escape in the film feeling like an act of creativity and imagination that yes of course the title is life you can think about that as you know a life sentence right that's the most obvious connotation with the title but it was during that sequence when we get the vision of the boom boom room where i was thinking oh this is why this movie is called life you know and maybe that's a generous like or like just me being like doing a poetic read but to me like that's how i read it yeah that's life and all the most beautiful moments in the movie is when life shines through 
those, you know, those bars. I guess, well, in this sense, it's it's not the typical steel bars of a prison. Um, but yes, yeah. yeah, you know, like that was life. And it's a really incredible scene. You also bring up a good point that it's like kind of like a 1930s work farm and then just like stays that way forever. I guess <laughs> yeah. like there's more buildings later on, but it is, you're right, a, it's pretty open air and pretty lax compared to something like Attica for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're told when they arrive, you will notice there are no bars here. There's no barbed wire. We've only got one thing, the swamp. Well, two things, I guess the swamps that you cannot navigate and the gun line. There's a, a sort of line in the sand that's been drawn. And if any prisoners to cross that gun line, uh, all the other guards have basically, you know, open permission to just immediately like shoot you and kill you and, and you know, cold right there. Uh, but that's it. You know, it, yeah, it's presented as this sort of place where, you know, hey, the, all of this is a prison. Good luck out there. Like you, you could try to escape. And as Marsh pointed out, uh, Eddie Murphy certainly does his character. Ray tries many times and. And uh, yes, uh, gets gets absolutely nowhere with all that. But you know, I do want to I, I do want to just kind of stay on this idea for a second. Now that we we've we've invoked the boom boom room and, and this like <laughs> magical moment, um, you know, I think for me watching both the films together, it it really kind of changed my thinking a little bit on the movie life, and. Uh, also in the context of, of how we've initially started talking about the documentary Attica, you know, and, and what its, its goal was, what its impetus was. Um, you know, it strikes me now, reflecting on both of these films and our world, our country particularly, that, that I think of the two, that like life is actually a, a far more cynical movie than, than, uh, Attica is, you know? And my, 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 my belief on that, my take on that, I guess I would say is that, you know, Attica was, was clearly designed as this sort of like activism, Mm -hmm. this, this hope that through, you know, the power of cinema, through the power of storytelling and media, that like we can create these documents which will push, you know, in that time, you know, of the the, the late sixties and early seventies of, you know, cinema and, and direct cinema having this 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 opportunity to say, folks, you know, this is life. These aren't just goddamn movies, right? Uh, and and we should fight. And and there's so many messages throughout the film, but like particularly like as the film closes with like calls to action, calls to do something, to get involved, to, you know, to, to make sure that we, we fight for a better system and improve conditions everywhere, you know, for prisoners and not just prisoners, but also society in general, right? The society that creates the conditions for these kinds of things. Whereas, you know, life is really just kind of about saying, hey, like like we've been discussing, that's life. It sucks. The most you can try to do is sort of imagine a better life for yourself, you know? Imagine your way out of this impossibly hopeless situation in which you will spend 65 years 
miserable, you know, and there's no chance for you to get out of it. There's no, there's no escape, literal or, you know, otherwise, I guess. Well, the only escape, of course, again, being, yeah, through, through your, through your mind, right? Through your imagination. And, and, and so for me, it's like reflecting on the two, I'm now kind of like, well, you know, life, if you think about it, kind of has a little bit more of a bleak (laughs) outlook on things than, than Attica does. Certainly the Attica documentary from 74. There was a more recent Attica documentary made, which I think is much more like depressing. Uh, and I'm not saying that the Attica documentary from 74 isn't depressing, but it's, it's more of like a, to me again, this it's sort of like call to arms that, that there is hope for us to get involved and, and enact change. And, you know, life in fucking 99 when this movie's made, it's just like, yeah, fuck, it's end of history shit, baby. Like, come on, this is what we got. This is the neoliberal hell we exist in, you know? Yeah, I buy yeah. the reading. I, I feel like I felt similarly. I felt as though Attica really was, in its depiction of the horrors all focused on trying to get an audience to to take up arms to actually feel that there can be hope if we can recognize the disaster that happened here while life really does feel like there's no changing this system this is a horror that has existed for decades and decades and decades and we can maybe laugh about it now but we certainly can't do anything to change it well, I think you guys are forgetting the end of the film, but uh, it was. yeah, it, it's certainly more personal than political. I mean, it's a it's a Hollywood film, you know. It's a universal picture. Eddie Murphy's not going to be calling for prison abolition. No, uh, but, not. You know, we take our victories where we can get them. For instance, uh, the the face, the the sort of supreme face of the oppressive white authority in life is, of course, none other than Nick Cassavetes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) which has always been very funny to me, uh, having him in there as this sort of like bungling sergeant who's trying to keep everyone in line. Yeah. But see, even in in his character, like, I mean, because look, I... I'm I'm going to be ex- very clear. Like I enjoy this movie a lot. I've seen it before several times. Rewatching it uh, this week, I was laughing just as hard at so many of the moments. I think this is a great comedy with, as you've described, a cast of incredible actors. The boys, yes, and and everybody is nailing their fucking part. You know. Uh, to me, there 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 aren't too many moments of the film where I would point at and, and say like, yeah, this isn't like very well put together and, and well crafted. But, you know, that preamble aside, like the criticisms that are out there of the movie of people who are kind of like, what is this? <laughs> you know, like, is this an apology or something, you know, to, to the prison system, to, to you know, the, the legacy of like race, racial injustice in our country? You know, like you described earlier, like some sort of schmaltzy nostalgia for for how quaint these, you know, prison farms used to be or something like that. Um, and it's it's in that Nick Cassavetes character that I, I, I think you kind of can, can see it the most. Because as you've described, yes, he is this sort of authority figure and, yeah, a brutal prison guard, you know, or at least presented as such. But again, over the time, because he also is one of the constants. We watch his character 
age 60 years or something like that, along with uh, Eddie Murphy and, and Martin Lawrence. You know, they have spent their lives together. But there are these moments with him where you see this humanity in his character, right? That, that yes, he's also a part of the system. And yeah, this is his goddamn job. And, you know, uh, he kind of likes these guys too, you know? And there is this moment, especially later in the film, where uh, once they're all fucking old men, you know, Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy are being like transferred out of the, the work gang because it's like they're fucking... 70 year old men they can't be on the chain gang so let's send him off to the basically the old folks home on the prison farm and he gets like choked up when he's like saying goodbye to them you know like i'm gonna miss you guys you know and it is presented in the film it's kind of this this touching moment you know again of like humanity shining through but it's like why is that even I know. Like, why should that even be a thing you know like fuck this guy you know fuck all these people that 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 par participated in this system, you know? Uh, and yeah, like it's in those moments where again, like I can see that kind of that critique of also being like, but isn't that a little odd it, when you take into account things like attic, you know, <laughs> when you take yeah. in things like that, you know, and, and sure, I think it's a very valid and, and fair criticism, but Marsh, as you said, you know, that wasn't, the goal of this film, you know, and it's, it's always easy to sort of like point at somebody and be like, well, you should have made a movie about this, you know, well, they didn't, you know, this is the movie that they made, you know? And again, I can see Eddie Murphy in his sort of ideas of putting this film together where he's sort of like, Hey, you know, I want to make a black cool hand Luke, right? I want to make a cool hand Luke for, for black actors primarily, right? For great performers and people that I have met over the years who, who aren't always necessarily getting great roles out there. And I want to put something together where we can all basically just all these funny guys be locked up together, literally, and, and, and have fun you know and he's not trying to stoke the flames of of you know abolition in this movie he's basically just trying to say yeah again this is the cynical take of it all yeah the world fucking sucks the best thing we can do is all of us deal with this shitty ass system and i guess be kind to one another i guess in spite of the hands that were all dealt still you know be decent be decent to each other yeah, I think it's, you know, it, again, it, it's such a strange film, strange object, right? Because it, it's an Eddie Murphy comedy with Martin Lawrence, and it's that first, right? It doesn't get funded without being that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get written without being that. It doesn't get produced without being that. So, like, it's that. And one thing that Rosenbaum said that stuck with me was he said, what I like about the episodic screenplay and mainly self-effacing direction is how many real-life issues it manages to broach without ever threatening to become pompous. So it's sort of a, like a best-case scenario for this kind of movie, which is like, it brings up a couple, you know, some serious things. Hell, one of the prisoners commits suicide. I mean, there are great tonal shifts into sadness and melancholy and back but it is what it is, you know? And it just kind of skirts along and, like, it's not going to dwell too much on certain elements because, well, they got to get back to the shtick, you know? Got to get back to the odd couple. Um, so, right, I mean, it's, yeah, it's that. But it's, yeah, it's still just ultimately such a curious version of that. 
I think this movie has maybe the worst poster of all time in terms of representing what it feels like to actually watch the thing. I, I had never seen it before, and I know... I knew that both of you had vouched for it, that you both were were big fans of it. But it's the kind of film that its poster, the cover on the DVD and the VHS, it looks like just any generic American comedy from the era. And I didn't even know it was a period piece. That's, you know, just the flat lighting of the way this film was advertised. You know, if you take a closer look, you'll see that they're wearing some some period-appropriate clothing in it. But it just looks like this overlit comedy. And then you watch the film, and it's not quite that. It still has those pieces. But when it gets sincere and serious, it's, it's just always so surprising because it's those tonal shifts that was not what I thought the experience of watching this movie was going to be. I even, going into it, thought it was just going to be a straight comedy that you both liked. I was really surprised to come to terms with the fact that this film does treat each moment quite seriously, even when it is being funny, that it's a film that isn't flinching at that and that is kind of moving between those tones really skillfully. And I think it it, it ultimately, everything that you've just sort of laid out there, like explains why, as Marsh said in his intro, this movie was so... Um, confounding for critics and for audiences at the time because it's a difficult film to market in that sense you know if you present this as just yeah this sort of laugh riot farce um well you're, you're not exactly going to get that you know they are aspiring to to more than that they're they are aspiring for you know I would say like at times like dramatic moments of, of as, uh, yes, I guess as Rosenbaum said, like poignant reflection on existence, on being, on, on how you simply like, you know, move through a life. Uh, And, and yeah, you know, it's like you, you, you kind of feel like it was subjected to this kind of like, well, shit, how, how do we market they don't know how to market, so they do that. They they just throw them on a white background with the word life, you know, and like, yeah. well, that's it, you know, <laughs> like I don't know what the hell this thing is, you know, and and I, I feel like that's it's such a disservice to the movie because as we've already been describing, like it is a whole lot more, and yes, these moments of tenderness that suddenly hit you, they they just kind of like. They startle you almost. You're 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 at times like, whoa! I did not expect this turn, and I don't know how to feel about it because I've just been laughing at the broad characters and the goofiness, and now suddenly, oh shit! Like, you almost forget that they're 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 people again in in a way that we were sort of talking about earlier. You know that we were just viewing them all as these kind of like yeah prisoners, and and they're all they all got a little thing, they all got a little quirk. You know, that mm-hmm. makes them who they are. And oh, here it comes again. No, that's funny. They're, they're nailing the jokes that, yes, when suddenly we're asked to to care about them deeply, um, I can see how, again, some people like don't really know what to do with that. You know, like what, what, what should I be feeling in this moment? I'm, I'm, I'm troubled by all of this, but, but to me, again, I think that's what, that's what makes it such a special, a special film. You know, it's like there's so many people who love, uh, you know, it's it's such a beloved movie, Shawshank Redemption. 
you know, another prison movie, right? One of one of the most famous prison movies in, in certainly the more modern era. And I will I will be I will be fully honest. I will take this any day over Shawshank Redemption. And I think they're making similar sort of points and similar kinds of of arguments about like life and again at times an almost like schmaltzy sort of uh well, you know, life, you know, it's what you make of it more than anything. And, and you can get a bum deal and be in prison, but you can, you can still be a good guy or whatever, right? Like, you know, the moment later in the film when Claude, Martin Lawrence's character, is, is now sort of, uh, you know, uh, I guess just a sort of like a driver and just sort of like a, a right-hand man to Ned Beatty, who's now one of the the superintendents or the warden, you know, he has him uh, drive him into town and, and he's going to meet the new warden that he's handing the, the prison over to. Ned Beatty like goes into the bus station. They, they drive into town and he says like, don't worry, I trust you. I trust you, Claude. Like, I know you're, you're not gonna try to run away. So I, I trust you. And he leaves, he goes inside and just leaves Martin Lawrence alone. And Martin Lawrence has this moment of like, I could do a runner. There's a bus right there. I could jump on that bus. I could go. And like, as you see him going through all these feelings, he starts to look around. He's in 1971 now. You know, he sees guys with like crazy hair and he sees like hippies and a dude listening to a boombox, which seems to like perturb him the most. He's like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? You know? Uh, and then he catches his reflection. He catches his reflection in the window of the car. And he's this old wrinkly gray man and oh god that scene like it just fucking hits you where he's just he gets that feeling of like what would even be the point right like and maybe that's what Ned Beatty sort of implied or meant by by this obviously there's a little more to it than that but like yeah that that just he just gets so deflated when he sees Shit, I've been here for 40 fucking years already. Like, I'm an old ass man. You know what it reminded me of? The end of Mississippi Masala when the dad goes back to Uganda mm -hmm. and, like, doesn't recognize it and no longer connects to it and is just, like, completely alienated in these crowds of people. I was, like, thinking of that. Like, yeah, just that distance... I mean, that's, of course, you know, one of the, as I mentioned earlier, one of the, yeah, like, sad detours of the film is uh, Biscuit, played by Miguel Nunez, who uh, is getting released and doesn't want to go um, for a variety of reasons, but the most obvious being that he's homosexual, right? Or what he's done in prison, uh, he's going to carry back out into the world, but... Really, it's just like, yeah, that fear of having been acclimated to this particular way of life, um, it's a scary thing, you know? It's terrifying. I was just also going to add that I would feel like Martin Lawrence, too, in certain respects, if I saw my reflection and had that amount of old man makeup on my head. This movie has all-time old man makeup. It's almost a, something I wanted to do as a theme one week was just 
actors in old man makeup. You know, I always think of like the all time being John Wayne and she wore a yellow ribbon wearing goofy old man makeup. Oh, sure. Of course. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other (laughs) level. (laughs) We've been, we've been Orson pilled, you know, Citizen Kane's. I mean, still one of the greats, you know, but I, Rick Baker got a nom for life. The only Oscar nomination for the film, of course, the legend, Rick Baker, who, uh, got phased out of the industry by digital effects. Wow. You know, it's funny, too. I, I pointed that out to Hillary because Hillary was kind of coming in and out of, of the movie. And uh, I was like, I was like, look at that makeup. That That's pretty impressive, Hillary. You don't see that kind of thing anymore. I sounded like a fucking fuddy-duddy or some shit like that, you know? And I was like, I was going off about it. And then and I was like, and it, it got nominated for an Academy Award for Best Makeup. And Hillary's response was, really? <laughs> She's like... <laughs> She was like, the best of the biz. Their faces don't move, you know? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they, I think they look yeah. pretty crazy. I like it, but they look insane to me. Yeah. It, it, it's like anything with that makeup, though. Like, it always depends on the angle. Because yeah. there are, like, some angles, right, where it's like, wow, that looks really, really good. And there's other angles where it's like, oh, yeah, like... Yeah, you know, the, the the cheek should be moving a little bit more than it is yeah. right now. But but yeah. I'll always take it over CGI faces, unquestionably. Oh, yeah. It's a nice little touch. God damn, though, it must have been hot underneath all that oh, shit. Oh, yeah. That's, that was also my reflection. And hours in the chair. Oh, yeah. You know. How they do it. Yeah, respect. When you hear those stories of actors being like, well, I showed up at 4.30 in the morning, and uh, we were ready to shoot by 3.30 in the afternoon or whatever, and you're like, what the now, fuck? Now be funny. Right. Yeah, now be funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's grueling. In the California heat, dude. You know, while we're talking about the a little bit of, like, the look of the advertising for life, and then also just talking about the look of the way these, these people look with the makeup, I was thinking about how stark some of the changes in the way that Attica looks throughout the film based off of the shooting format, how it had kind of an insane effect aesthetically on how I felt while watching it, especially when it goes from the colorful 16 millimeter photography of the on the ground reports from inside the, the occupation to then going towards like sludgy, video photography of the massacre and hearing the descriptions of people crawling around in the mud you know naked making their, their way shit. out just horrifying and that accompanied with that change in the way it looks of course because yeah i mean she, she wasn't there filming that on 16 millimeter but it has this accidental effect that made it so much more frightening to me while watching it, I felt, and I was curious how you guys felt about the way it kind of moved back and forth between that. Cause I was even thinking about that during the hearings, sometimes when some really sinister people were talking and their heads were getting warped by the, the video and the TV screen that she was probably filming. And they looked like sinister monsters that were deciding the fates of all of these people. It was a weird accidental effect that, that really struck a chord with me. Yeah. The national guard footage is very scary and very striking especially like the scope footage they have these cameras like rigged up to these scopes i mean you're basically getting 
first person massacre footage uh and it's deeply unsettling it also abstracts it you know in a way that i guess i'm like yeah i don't like really need to like watch people being murdered uh, in full clarity you know i'm okay uh with it but it has this like surveillance state effect and aesthetic you know it's like this functional footage that has no beauty that has no anything it's just like well, they're just filming their own war crime, basically. Um, it's deeply upsetting. And the film does a really great job, I think, like navigate, you know, we talk about life navigating like all these tones. I mean, Attica is a feat of of like archival managing, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many different formats, still images, you know, film images, video images. Uh, it's a true like collage of different media. Um, and it does have a strange effect on you as a viewer, you know, because it's not just a verite documentary it's it's cut up and seen from all these different angles again like andy said a good documentary that is yeah what what did you say like the liberation newsreel or whatever like yeah of course it's like break this shit down you know show it from from all sides like we've been talking about recently with uh the, the revolution will not be televised. The Chavez documentary. Like, yeah, I'm, I love that shit when it's like, and here's when they fucking lied, you know? Like, here he's showing you, you know, the contrasts and, and the narrative that's always being, like, fought over and struggled over in these situations. Yeah, that was definitely my favorite part of the film. The way it put so much emphasis and detail on how a narrative was spun from the situation and all the different tools that were used, both in terms of the press, the articles, that the clippings that we see, the way everybody talks about it during the hearings. And the fact that that collage creates that portrait I, I can only imagine how horrifying that would have been. Again, I just keep thinking about seeing it in 1974, you know, and how that could potentially radicalize someone to see how a narrative is constructed right before your eyes if you're not paying attention. And I want to especially criticize the news media, which accepted as true without any reservation, without using the word alleged, the statements of the prison authorities and the governor that the men, the hostages, had had their throat cuts, that one had been emasculated, and that two had been killed long before the onslaught by the state troopers. You did everyone a disservice in accepting that fact. You did everyone a disservice and might have caused additional tragedy in reporting as fact what now has proved to be lies. And I think in the future, you should judge your own consciences in how you report statements of public officials without any opportunity of the outside world to verify them. The press was eager to get out a story. More eager to get out a story than to investigate the story they were getting out. They wanted to say, well, we'll get the scoop here. We'll get it to the readers quick. But they weren't concerned with the authenticity of it. What what hostage was killed by his throat being cut? Name one. None. All of them was killed by bullets. Gun wounds, shotgun, M16s, and whatnot. So now, after they recognized that they bullets had killed the people, now what they gonna do? They gonna dupe the people and tell the people that their throat was cut. That's the reason they told the lies. They had to justify their wrongdoing. I think that the only thing in in relation to that, though, like the specific time in which this movie co- had had come out. Uh, 
you know, you, you, you have to also consider all of the other things over the last 10 years, really, that Americans had seen on TV and in some cases on fucking live TV <laughs> that were equally as, as, as horrifying, violent and, and unsettling. You know, we were again, sort of just going off on, on the Frankenheimer film, but, but Frankenheimer's against the wall opens with this like insane montage of basically like, you know, the late fifties to up, up to like the early seventies. Not unlike the montage in life. Yeah, not unlike the montage <laughs> yeah. in life, where where we're you know we see these like, significant events, but like, man, just a few of the fucking hits in 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 Frankenheimer's, you know, again like archival footage, you know, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the fucking assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Malcolm X, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, right? Like Kent State massacre, right? All these kinds of things that that I feel like for audiences now in 1974, uh, there's perhaps also. I mean, this is the 70s. We're talking about the revolution's over already, you know. In the in the early mid 70s, they that we tried 68 kind of brought it all down. That I almost feel like people too might have just kind of been like, oh, you mean to tell me the government lies and they fucking murder people and they get away with it? Like, been there, done that. You know, that, that it's almost like too recent for people to find like actionable. It's like, oh yeah, and now this as well, right? They killed all our fucking heroes. They've they murdered fucking, you know, basically everybody who was in charge of the Black Panthers. Like we we this is the smoking gun? Like, yeah. There I mean, was too much bad news back then, right? Yeah, because you almost get, like, fatigued from it. Yeah, you're awash in Watergate. You're awash in the Pentagon Papers. People are learning about the CIA for the first time in terms of what they'd been doing. Yeah, I mean, it's that whole era of revelation and reckoning. I mean, Frankenheimer even includes the hard hat riots in New York when all the right-wing guys uh, went out and beat all the protesters with two by fours and shit um i mean and like you even in the film kind of get that from one of the prisoners re reflecting on it uh you know i forget the name of the particular prisoner but there's this one guy that's basically just kind of like what do you expect you know what this this order right it came from fucking rockefeller and he got the order he got the sanction from nixon and look at him right look at the fucking it's it's coming from the goddamn president of the country who's also a crook who's a criminal you know and like what do you expect like is anyone gonna give a shit about us all the way on the opposite end of the 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 chain in america like come on you know, what are you, uh, how are you surprised by any of this? You know, there's one prisoner who's just very much sort of like resigned to not just what happened on that, you know, fateful day in Attica, but, but also the, the aftermath when, when certainly we learn that, you know, the only people in spite of all this evidence, in spite of the fact that the medical examiner comes out and, and tells the American public that, yeah, all those prison guards, they also got blown away by the, the state troopers and the park rangers and anybody else that they handed a gun to that day who wanted to have some fun. Like, the only indictments that were handed out were to the prisoners for starting it, right? It, it's this message that that we're left with that 
you know, well, whose fault is this massacre? The prisoners. It's the prisoners' fault for uprising. If they hadn't done this uprising, we wouldn't have had to just unload thousands of rounds of ammunition into a crowd indiscriminately. Like, that's the message that ultimately they were, they were left with. Because as we pointed out, no reforms, no serious reforms resulted from, from, from any of it. You know, what I was struck by, too, in all that footage of, like, the McKay Commission, I think it was, mm-hmm. where, where they were, you know, they, they were dragging all these fucking assholes up there to be like, answer for yourself, answer for this. And how many of them not just had, like, shitty answers, but how many of them were asked these questions, these very pointed questions, and they just sat there saying nothing. They just sat there like, I don't know. Like that seemed to be the response more than anything for these guys. Like, man, the one guy, the the major, major Monahan, who is in charge of the state troopers, you know, basically who was the guy that, that sort of planned over, oversaw the, the, the tactical assault, the retaking of the prison. And, you know, one of the guys questioning him is just like, like, but even in your wildest fucking imagination of your tactical plan that you laid out for us, if the prisoners said to you, don't come in or we'll cut these guys' throats, how in your most perfect commando raid did you expect to get from outside the prison to those prison guards in the time it would take for them to simply drag a knife across their throats. Do you think that was possible? And what does he say? Oh, yeah, I doubt it. Like, yeah, there was no way. They were going to die no matter what. It's basically what he said, you know? Like, yeah, they were fucked either way. So we figured, eh, just kill them all. Like, Jesus Christ, that was it. And what's the follow-up to something like that? That's criminal, but nah. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's evident watching, you know, all of this footage that, yeah, I mean, even calling it a commando raid is generous. It was a lynching. I mean, look at the footage. It's a bunch of white guys pulling up in their state trooper cars and their trucks and some people bringing hollow points and other personal weapons to the hunt. I mean, it's disgusting. And you see it, you know. Almost all of the prisoners are people of color, uh, and all of the the posse is white. I mean, it's insane. And then to have yeah zero indictments uh, on uh, the side of that killed forty people or whatever. Uh, I mean, it's it's mind boggling, right? And then you drag them all through the commission. Uh, and for what, <laughs> you know, I felt so bad for that one, uh, assemblyman or congressman, uh, who was black and who was like on TV, you know, at the hearings or whatever. And he's just like, got his face in his, in his hands. Just like, I can't believe this. Oh fucking yeah. Shit. You that, know, that was one of my favorite moments because yeah, he is basically just like to this, this deputy commissioner more or less saying you're a racist murderer. Like you're a racist fucking monster and you have perpetuated a system of racial injustice and human cruelty. And like just completely basically gives him the classic, like shame on you, sir, shame on you. And the deputy commissioner's response, dude, is in it's, it is, (laughs) I love fucking assholes like this who suddenly have to like, try to like, 
you know, save their face in public on, on fucking camera. And dude, his response, and I'm not going to say the whole response, but basically he was just like, well, I feel like it's important to point out here to folks that, you know, I have a long history of being considered a very good guy. Mr. Carter, I certainly respect, uh, your, uh, right to an opinion and the like. I can only respond uh, by, uh, asking you to examine the record, uh, of a young man that grew up in a cosmopolitan neighborhood, uh, that was student body president, that played football with every ethnic group, that I have been without prejudice, that I uh, was commended in California for developing a, a comprehensive program for the recruitment and development of minority groups in correctional work, and I've always struggled for fairness and democracy and uh, equal opportunity. I was student body president. <laughs> I played football. I played football for many years with people of many different races, right? So his like response yeah. is like, hey, come on. I got black friends. I played football with some of them. I, I wouldn't be such a bad guy and get elected student body president in high school, would I? Come on, sir. You do me an, in, you do me an injustice. <laughs> it's like, dude, that's it, dude. He pulled the fucking, I was great at football in high school card. Like, right. don't send me to fucking jail. Don't indict me. <laughs> and sadly, <laughs> and this is America. It worked, you know? It worked, his defense, you know? He's like, I've been in the prison business since 1937. The guy's like, and you think, how have prisons gone since then? <laughs> you know, how are they How are they doing? Like, Well, we've only had one Attica, so <laughs> pretty good, I'd say, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, like a lot of these kinds of American history events. It's such a grotesque spectacle. Yeah. I think too, though, and again, this is why for me, it's like I, I go back to this idea of like Attica being a, a I think a much more like kind of like, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to say like hopeful, but but yeah, like a, a film with like a mission, you know, yeah. a, a goal of 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 something yeah actionable, you know, and, and life kind of being ultimately a much more like for me again a sort of like cynical view of things you know again and despite the message that it 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 sort of is offering to us about making the most of whatever shitty situation you find yourself in but i kept going back to 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 as i often do you know uh foucault and and deleuze foucault and deleuze you know foucault famously wrote about you know a society of punishment, right? Living and existing in societies of punishment. And that's what prisons are the ultimate representation of, a society of punishment. Why is a prison here? What is the existence of a prison? Uh, it's, it's there as a threat. It's there as a, as, a, as, a, as a bludgeon to a populace. Like, don't act up or you're going to wind up in one of these places, right? That's historically what they've been used for. And yes, people get thrown in there and they get exorbitant, uh, you know, sentences, especially in America. Like, again, you want to see something like just absolutely like mind numbing. The documentary shows you like, and these are the charges which were then added on to the sentences of all these guys. And some of them are like 489 years. You know, it's like, 
What is the fucking point of sentencing somebody to 489 years in prison, you know? But we do it and we get like like judges get glee out of of that and 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 the press and people in in all kinds of things who love being like, "Yeah, take that, you son of a bitch, 400 years in jail." It's like it's like the kind of number a kid would make up, you know, like, "You owe me a million dollars." Right. Like, okay. You know, wow, 400 years, great. You know, watch me. I'm going to make it through that, you know? Yeah, they, they have people in jail for 490 years only so they can walk away uh, smiling and dissolve uh, in, in the midst of the screen as they do in life when we get the, the <laughs> yeah. montage of all the characters just disappearing wow. into thin air. There they go. So sad. <laughs> but, but again, like Foucault is basically saying, like, hey, we exist in a society of punishment. You don't act up because of this threat. You know, going back to our our little, you know, uh, therapy session at the the start of this episode, right? (laughs) Talking about my nightmares, talking about that one experience, talking about Hitchcock, you know, these these like, whoa, you're going to wind up in jail. Don't act up. You're going to go you're going to go to prison. So that's it. That was that's the threat. But, you know, Deleuze much later would say, well, it's not exactly a society of punishment anymore. You know, that was then, you know, and, and Foucault is also writing about it historically. Foucault goes back hundreds of years in his analysis of a society of punishment and the development of the state and, and you know, the king who can who can end your life with the wave of a hand and that kind of shit, Macbeth. right? Now you keep Macbeth, right? Yeah. How, how you keep people alive. But Deleuze, you know, by the time he starts writing about it, he's like, well, we don't exactly live in a society of punishment now. Now we live in a society of control. Uh, you don't act up because you're afraid of going to prison. You just don't act up anymore, right? Like we've shifted now that it has worked so well and the, the apparatus has, has achieved its end so successfully that it's like that threat doesn't exist for the average person who wonders like, should I suddenly like throw a Molotov cocktail at that bank or whatever? Like, you know, the majority of people aren't going to do shit, not because you're afraid you're going to jail or you're going to prison, just because you got other shit to worry about. You know, you got it's not even it's not even a thought in your mind anymore. Like that's that's it, and that's where I come to with life being a movie that's like, yeah, you're not gonna. What, what, what are we going to do? Take over the prison farm? Like, what would that, what would that solve? You know, it's like rushing the guards all together, getting organized, you know, like what? Eh, yeah. I mean, we could, but, but look at Attica. So yeah, I mean, fuck it. Let's, uh, let's go to the boom, boom room. You yeah. God damn right. That's <laughs> <laughs> where I want to be. Yeah. I mean, we all want to be in the boom, boom room. Man. Come on, you know, and we all want to get, uh, drafted into uh, the Negro League's baseball organization because we can't stop hitting home runs in prison baseball, which is a yeah very thorough B plot involving Bokeem Woodbine as a sort of mentally disabled man or a mute man who yeah. uh, is just in like a savant at baseball and so then he's recruited uh by noah emmerich uh ted demi legend beautiful girls right yeah Uh, a a baseball scout who manages to secure this dude a a pardon yeah and and again how can that whole sequence not be viewed as a very cynical indictment of the plight of so many african-american men so many black men in america it's like well if you can ball 
You can get, get out of anything, yeah. right? I mean, that's what happens because because Martin Lawrence gets it in his mind, like, hey, basically, I'll be his manager, you know, I'll coach him and I'll work with him, and and they'll bring me along too, you know. I'm a, I'm a part of this puzzle, and Noah Emmerich's like, dude. Are you kidding? Like, what can you do? Yeah. You can't do. Can you ball? Yeah. Can you hit fucking dingers like this guy? No. So you're staying in fucking prison. And again, it's one of those moments that ends on just like incredible sadness as they watch this guy drive away. And it's like, shit. Yeah, we got nothing, and and we aren't gifted with with physical talents like this guy is who had never picked up a bat before in his fucking life. Despite that, like Martin Lawrence loves baseball. It's pointed out in the movie. You know, it's a very like, yeah, it's just a real bummer of a, of a reality that, that again, so many people face. I feel like the most curious performance in life is definitely Bernie Mac. Oh, I love it so much. I do too. I can't quite put my finger on it. When we were watching, Molly just asked, why is Bernie Mac the way he is in this? And it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly what he's doing, um, but... It's definitely not what I was expecting when you see Bernie Mac again on that poster, just like smiling. Mm -hmm. He's kind of slurring and he's suspicious and he's kind of sliding around half awake, perhaps, or just on a totally other plane of existence. It's a really wild, stylized performance. If you need anything of any kind, give me a holler. Name Jingle, Jingle. I appreciate it. Jangle, you Jangle, Jangle. Claude. Claude. Yeah, Claude. Your hand nice and supple. Like a lady. Dude. It's, oh. He's like a true eccentric, you know? That's yeah. the way I see it. And for me, he's the funniest guy in the whole goddamn movie. And, and I think they know it to a certain extent too because at least he gets like the big punchline in the sort of like spartacus scene uh because you know there's again with bokeem woodbine there's uh, a subplot where you know implied is that he has impregnated uh, the superintendent's daughter may rose or rose may or whatever and uh you know she has the baby and it's the classic comedy scene the baby's what you yeah. know and the superintendent uh, takes the baby over to the work camp, lines all the prisoners up, and then is just like holding the baby in front of everyone's face to figure out who the father is. And it gets to Bokeem Woodbine, and it's a little uncomfortable. And then, you know, the boys step forward. You know who the daddy of that chocolate baby is? Huh? You do? Well, who is it? Pick up! It's my baby, boss. Lying, I'm the father of that baby, boss. Boss, I'm that baby's daddy. Any fool can see that baby belongs to me. I want a different. That little rascal belonged to me. Proud to say, boss, I'm that baby's daddy. I be the paw, boss. I'm the paw of that there youngin', boss. I'm the baby. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to impersonate Bernie Mac. No, no, no. But no, I was just reveling in his weirdness. Like, I think it's really inspired. Me too. You know, it's it's He's it's great. a lot, but 
uh, it just makes me laugh. Again, you know? in the context of this movie, it's it's it, 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 it's seamless to me, you know. And like honestly, like my my thing was like right when the movie like ended, you know, I like turned to Hillary and I was just like. I just turned to her and I said, rip Bernie Mac. Everybody misses you. You know, like, damn, like, so what true. Because honestly, think about so many of his other movies, man. And he's just, he was just such a great fucking comedic actor. He really was. Gotta and like Mr. 3000 yeah. on the pod. Because he died yeah. really young, right? Yeah. He was in his, I think, 40s when he, when he, when he died. Yeah. It's heartbreaking, you know, heartbreaking. Because, man, I, I can't think of a time when I would see Bernie Mac in a movie. And I, obviously there's like bad movies he's been in or whatever, but like, can't think of a time where I saw Bernie Mac and not thought like, that dude's a pro 100%. Yeah. He always adds something to a film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, dude, yeah. he's fucking like bad Santa, dude. He's like one of the best parts of that movie. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> oh. He's the best part. Yeah. He's when so... he's shaking him down, that's like a scene I think about on the regular still. Yeah. yeah he was 50 when he died. And I guess, you know, uh, I should mention, I, I suppose, uh, the director of Life also had a very tragic and, and young death. And I was uh, certainly shook when I was like, how old was Ted Demi when he died? He's 38. He's mm-hmm. like, sorry, you know? Yeah. Uh, very tragically. Yeah. Did he die? He was like, on like I thought he had a basketball ho- court. Yeah, he like had a heart attack. He dropped dead playing basketball, and they think it's because he like did a lot of cocaine or was like on cocaine, and his heart just like fucking exploded or whatever. Uh, I didn't look into it too much, but yeah. Yeah, was very, it on like very... TV or was this a private game? No, it was no, just in life. Oh, you know, okay. he, was, he was just balling out and collapsed. And died, and he was only 38. And of course, he had, you know, after life went on to make Blow, which was a, a considerable hit uh, for him. And, and just a young guy. I mean, he had a very bright. Speaking of cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he had a very bright future uh, ahead of him, but uh, didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Sad, just like the movie Life. Hey, life, you know? And, and that's just it. Like it's life like. Itself. It's like you said, there's that extended sequence Ryan sort of described it earlier where like we've kind of gotten to know all these guys and we, you know, all the various sort of like oddballs and 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 we love them, you know, we 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 really we do. You, you, you're like, I, hey, you know, I guess. And again, this is the curious part of this movie where you're like, hey, I guess prison wouldn't be so bad with all these friends. You know, they all seem pretty chill. They yeah, all seem Anthony Anderson's the chef. Like, yeah. yeah, it's all, it's all yeah. good. He has, I think, my favorite line in the whole movie, though. Right when Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy get to get to, you know, the the prison farm, you know, it's very clear that they don't really know what the hell they're doing. They're trying to like sort of figure out their place. And and there's this big sort of like hulking guy. I forget the name of the actor who plays him, but he's he's clearly like, oh, watch out for this guy. You know, he's the sort of like monster that you you want to avoid in, in prison. And he wants Martin Lawrence's cornbread. You know, they're eating. And he says, hey, can I have your cornbread? And Martin Lawrence is just a nice guy, and he doesn't know anything. He's total fish out of the water. So he's just kind of, yeah, sure, you can have my cornbread. But then it starts this whole thing with Eddie Murphy where he's like, If he wants some cornbread, let him go up to the front and get his own portion of cornbread. That's your cornbread. Fuck him. Hey, man, he going to eat his cornbread, all right? Fuck you. Right. Look, I don't, I don't need you to, to, to take up for me. I'm all right. I'm a, I'm a grown man. I can handle it. If you that. let him have your cornbread, you're going to be adding his drawers and clipping his toenails. Maybe I ought to eat your cornbread. Oh, motherfucker, you can't have my cornbread. That's for damn sure. Because if you try to take my cornbread, part two of my killing spree going to begin up in here on your ass right now. If you think about my cornbread, they get the taste out your mouth. That's for damn sure. 
No, fuck um, him. Fuck that. Because I'm from New York City, goddammit. And it leads to a, a, a brawl between Eddie Murphy and this big guy. And at a certain point, you know, there's this huge fight going on. And Eddie Murphy, you know, like falls over at a certain point. And like, and, and Anthony Anderson is the chef, like kind of picks him up really quick. And, and he's like, I appreciate you going through all the trouble over my cornbread. You don't get a lot of compliments around here. Here, you know, <laughs> I just die over that fucking line dude it's so goddamn funny to me and it only sharpens the contradiction between attica because of course like famously the food at attica was like the worst shit on earth the soup that they claimed was chicken noodle soup was just boiled water uh and really the only thing of substance they had was like beans uh just like the worst shit ever and in life they got like chunky pieces of cornbread that cornbread looked really good i made me want some yeah yeah they they kind of fucked up by yeah depicting food as like plentiful and delicious but again the cook you know he took pride in his cornbread so of course again that's just his form of life and creativity he stuck there too. they have to get those ingredients for him the infrastructure right right because they have that big cookout too he's like grilling steaks when they're playing ball that food looks, yes. the food all looked great in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that's like, man, for me, one of the, like, again, you go back to Attica and, and so many of the things that they were <clears throat> like clearly very like upset about and, and reasonably so, and the things they were asking for and calling for, you know, and, and so many of the, the things that they, they keep hitting on is that like, look, this wasn't just over like one little thing like this had been brewing because of a constant pattern of dehumanization and abuse and how so much inside prison then as now is designed to basically just just fuck with prisoners just to make them even more miserable just to just to ruin their life like not only are you in prison but now every single day we're going to figure out a way to increase this like uh this 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 sentence of of constant indignity you're under and yeah like the food is certainly a part of it and i don't know if you guys are 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 familiar with this kind of thing today but man i i once like learned about uh like punishment meals punishment meals that a lot of prisons do today so if you're like a prisoner who has you know acted up or or simply pissed off the guards and and you're then given a prison meal uh what uh, like a punishment meal what they do is they take your standard whatever your tray was going to have you know your dessert your your protein your your starch you know they take they take all of it and your drink and they dump it into a blender more or less they just kind of like pulse it all in a blender everything together and they form it into a loaf your entire meal and then they bake it again in an oven and then they give you that that's what you are then given to eat now again think about what that's going to do to a human being you know what kind of message that says it's like not only are you going to eat shitty prison food but now we're also going to basically like make it into a prank (laughs) you know it's part of your extra punishment you know it's like it's 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 mind numbing well yeah i guess if if you get thrown in the slammer, Andy, you know, if, if you're allowed to bring in like one or two DVDs of prison movies to have on the shelf in your bunk, uh, you could yeah. like keep them in the mattress. What what would they be? 
Well, I mean, you know, as Marsh said, and, and as you said, I mean, man, that, you know, it's, it's, it's part of, I guess, like our, our, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things. There's like, there's just so many great, uh, movies set in prison because it's just such a part of our fucking society, sadly. Right. And, and obviously there's lots of great American prison movies and, and there's also a lot of great like international prison movies. I mean, Marsh mentioned, uh, Becker. I think Latrue is, is, uh, a, an amazing film. Um, a really, really like just a, a, fascinating film in terms of like how it's constructed and, and stuff like that. Um, I know we're all as listeners would, would probably have figured out by this point, big Clint guys. So, I mean, escape from Alcatraz is, banger. yeah, that's a, that's a definite banger, but I got another one too, that, that is equally problematic for people. I think, uh, to something like life, but I gotta say, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, and that would be, uh, brawl and cell block 99. Uh, man, I, I, I like that movie a lot. And a Don Johnson man all the way. Yeah. I mean, and Udo Kier, Udo Kier in there as the like creepy abortion doctor or whatever is so disgusting and grimy. I mean, it's, it's a fucked up movie, but, but, but I'm a fan of it. So it was very good. Yeah, I was up, and I sentenced you both to to bringing these films. Uh, Ryan, I think you're up next, so what do you got for us? Yeah, it's been um, a challenging couple of weeks for me, uh, just professionally. I've had a lot going on, and it's got me on edge. And I was thinking about how one thing I always kind of look forward to is is October. I like spooky season. But I didn't want to limit anything specifically to the spooky season as we get prepped for it. Instead, I thought I'd go to the core of it. And recently, we we did anger as a theme on the gauntlet. So I thought it might be interesting to do another emotion. Why don't we look at films about fear, where fear is a pervading quality throughout the film? And I'll just let you engage with that however you want. Doesn't need to be a horror film. Could be. Um, but instead something that just engages with that idea of fear because I find myself feeling it a lot <laughs> as of late. So I thought I'll just keep bludgeoning myself because I'm a glutton for punishment. Well, I mean, I, I almost feel like I shot my wad with the whole, like, you know, my nightmare being zombies in prison. I've, I've already tackled, you know, two of my biggest fears. So, you know, I'll have to dig. What about arachnophobia? I'm sure. Spiders. I like spiders, actually. I, I'm one of those guys that looks at spiders and goes like, I'm not killing you, bro. You're killing other bugs, so I'm fine right. with you. Don't mess with me, and I won't mess with you. I'm cultivating quite a large, large one out there. I as saw you've it. Seen. I was <laughs> impressed. I was like, "Keep going, boy." You know. Great. Uh, I'm, a, I'm scared. I'm afraid. <laughs> Get me out of here. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, etc., and you can always send an email. To Marsh's mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Check the mailbag. Stop hiding. Stop talking about it don't exist. Stop talking about you don't understand it. Stop talking about that cold water black you live in is good enough for you. Stop talking about where you in jail and uh, you getting three meals a day. 
I'm not waking up because the same thing has happened to me is happening to you. And deal, petition, rallies. Let the people, let the governor, let the president and people that in a position to do something about this know how you feel about your sons and your daughters that's incarcerated. Other than that, wake up because nothing come to a sleeper but a dream. <laughs>